Well, if you would take your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 11. And I just want to read this to set before you where we're headed this morning. So we're going to read it, we're going to say a whole bunch of stuff, and then we're going to come back to this at the very end. But I want to put this in front of you um, so that you can understand the end goal today. It's going to be Romans chapter 11. We're just going to read verse 36. This is the word of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's ask for God's help this morning. Father, I come before you as a very needy man. I need your help this morning to speak clearly as I ought to, to speak faithfully to your word as I ought to, to glorify you as I ought to. Lord, I am capable of speaking words and only you can deliver life-giving words to the hearts of your people. So Lord, I ask that you would do a, a miracle here this morning in all of our hearts by causing us to hear real truth that changes us. May Christ be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. We are, as you know, taking the next few weeks to look at the distinctives of our church, of Flatland Bible Church. Last week, we laid a, a foundational understanding of uh, what the church is. Uh, we asked the question and tried to answer it, uh, what is the church? We looked at the identity uh, of the church, the authority over the church, and the mission of the church. And the goal there was to uh, try to lay the foundation upon which we're going to build these pillars called distinctives. Now, what are distinctives? As a reminder, what we mean when we speak of our distinctives is we're talking about the theological, doctrinal, and practical commitments that we have as a church that make us distinct. Distinct-ives. Distinct. This morning, we're going to look at the very first of these distinctives. Reformed theology. We're going to be, begin there because just like our foundational understanding of the church must inform our distinctives, Reformed theology is going to speak to the perspective from which we are going to formulate these distinctives. I would like to spend our time this morning giving a, a very brief spattering of the historical roots, roots of Reformed theology, and I mean very brief because it's over 500 years of history, and I am neither qualified nor able to cover all of that this morning. Uh, and we just want to give a very brief history of the roots of Reformed theology, namely to talk about the Protestant Reformation, so that we can draw from that general principles uh, that were at the center of the Protestant Reformation, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time expounding on those principles. Now, I realize that there are some of you in here this morning that are quite familiar with Reformed theology. Some of you have the t-shirt. <clears throat> some of you wore that t-shirt this morning. Uh, so some of you are very familiar with Reformed theology. 
there are others of you who don't really know what in the world we're talking about. That just sounds like a really big, scary word, theology. What is all of that about? Some people, you grew up in the context where Reformed theology was a cuss word. It was a bad thing to say. Well, for many people, Reformed theology is a really bad thing. And I th- that's largely because there have been a lot of bad caricatures of what Reformed theology is. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning is, is what is Reformed theology? Is it really as bad as people say? Because there's a lot of people out there that would say it's really, really bad. Or is it good? Is it a good thing? And why do we even want to talk about theology at all? Isn't the Bible enough? Isn't it just enough to say that we want to be biblical? Yes, of course it is. And that's why we say Reformed theology. Because that at the heart of Reformed theology is nothing more than the Scriptures. If Reformed theology has such a stigma attached to it, why should we make it a distinctive of the church? Why would we want to even say that this is a distinctive of our church if a lot of people view this as a bad word? And why make it the first distinctive that we're going to talk about? Well, I'm going to go ahead and answer that up front, and then I'll spend the rest of the time making the point. First of all, we want to, have, we want to acknowledge that everybody has a theology. So though many of us grew, want to be able to say, well, isn't just the Bible enough? Why do we have to do the theology thing? Everybody has a theology. Because th- theology is just the study of God. And as soon as you begin to start talking about what you think about God, guess what you're doing? Theology. You might not ever have gone to seminary. You might not have ever even really studied the Bible. But you're doing theology whenever you start to talk about God. So uh, the way that R.C. Sproul phrased it, he said, quote, No Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian has a theology. The issue then is not do we want to have a theology. That's a given. The real issue is do we have a sound theology, end quote. Everyone is a theologian because everyone has a way of thinking about God and the Christian faith. And so what we want to do is just make sure that we're good theologians. Secondly, Reformed theology has been grossly misrepresented in popular Christianity. There are a lot of erroneous opinions regarding what Reformed theology is today. So I hope to clear up some of that in our minds this morning. Thirdly, and most importantly... I am thoroughly convinced that Reformed theology sets forth nothing more than pure, unfiltered, biblical truth. Reformed theology elevates God as high above us as the human mind can possibly conceive and brings man as low as conceivable before the high and exalted God. Some people call Reformed theology big God theology. Reformed theology puts as a matter of first importance the supremacy and authority of the Word of God. Reformed theology, then, is not some system contrived in the halls of academia that is then brought to the Bible. No, this theology is derived out from the Bible. It's brought out from the Scriptures. Now, Let me just share a little bit from my own heart with you 
as a disclaimer. My goal is not for you to leave here and bear the name, I am reformed. That's not my ultimate goal. Whether you decide to call yourself reformed or not is not ultimately of most importance. But what I do hope that you would do is to hear, hear how this is drawn out from the scriptures and to embrace these great biblical truths. Because I do believe Reformed theology to be nothing more than just biblical truth. Now, let's begin with just a, the brief spattering of the history of the Reformation. Historians point to October 31st, 1517 as the day the Protestant Reformation began. So that means there's a much better holiday to celebrate on October 31st. It's Reformation Day. Hallelujah. This is the day that a certain Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther famous, famously nailed the 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg over in Germany. Martin Luther was looking to have a discussion over certain points of doctrine that he was beginning to have a change of mind about. Now, we went through the holiness, of, we're going through the holiness of God right now, so you're probably familiar with this story, so I'm not going to go into great detail, but you remember that Luther at the time was a Roman Catholic monk, priest, and scholar. But God had been doing an incredible work in his heart. Luther began to be deeply troubled by the teaching of the Catholic Church, teaching that he himself had been committed to as a monk and a scholar. The main issue at the heart of Luther's troubled heart was the issue of justification. My friends, this is the issue of every single religion that everybody needs to be able to answer is how can a sinful man be made right in the eyes of a holy God? You need to have the answer to that question before you die because you will stand before him and there will only be one answer that will be correct on that last day. The Roman Catholic Church for centuries had a stranglehold on the world as it had infiltrated even various governments with its aberrant teaching. Of the many issues of the day with the Catholic Church, which continue to be an issue today, was the matter of justification, how you are made right in the eyes of God. You see, the Catholic Church had been teaching in various ways the need for your own works to work alongside grace and faith in Christ. It was not enough just to believe in Jesus. You had to bring something to the table. They were even teaching something and even selling something known as indulgences. Indulgences were, were things that you could purchase. I mean, this is made up things that you could purchase that would grant that you would not be punished for the sins that you committed. Now imagine that. Hey, I, I, I sinned last night. How much is it going to cost me to be forgiven this morning? Ten bucks? Great. Here's a ten. I'm forgiven. Hallelujah. There was even a, a, um, a friar by the name of Tetzel, Johann Tetzel, who was famous in history as saying, as soon as a coin in the coffer uh, rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Pay some money. You can be spared of purgatory. Pay some money, and your loved ones can even be taken out of purgatory. Well, you can imagine, this is a great way to make some money. Jesus, but pay you and I can be saved? That sounds great. 
Do you see how this appeals to sinful man who wants to find a way to make himself right? He wants to be able to appeal to his own good works. Well, I'm not that bad of a person. You know, I, I, don't, I don't lie to people. You know, I've never killed anybody. Surely God is going to look at that and have mercy on me. As though God is grading everyone on a scale. And as long as you're a little bit less sinful than the person before you, you get to go to heaven. And you get to be spared eternal judgment. That's exactly what they were teaching. And that is why it was so popular. Needless to say, the Catholic view of justification and therefore salvation was grossly distorted to the, became, to the point that it's completely it was and still is completely unbiblical. This does not save you. Luther began to become convinced through the reading and studying of the word of God that a sinner can only be made right with God, not by grace plus merit, faith plus works, or Christ plus other mediators, but by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And that's it. That's the one way. The Catholic Church so opposed this teaching that the Council of Trent, which was the Catholic Church fighting back against the Reformation, they pronounced that if anyone teaches that a person could, goes on and teaches that someone can be justified by faith alone, let them be anathema. Well, what does anathema mean? Cursed. Imagine that. That if anyone goes off and teaches that you can be saved by faith alone, the Catholic Church was saying, we pronounce a curse upon you. My friends, do you want to make yourself an enemy of God? Close the door of heaven in front of people who would find it. To pronounce anathema on a person is to pronounce a curse upon them. It's what Paul says in Galatians that if anyone comes to you with a different gospel than the one that we brought to you, let them be accursed, anathema. So why did Luther, if he was at the time a devoted Catholic priest and scholar, and if he was going to be so viciously opposed for going against the supreme authority of the Roman Catholic Church, why would he do this? Why would he go against this teaching? We don't have to guess, because in 1521, at the Diet of Worms, which was an assembly of the church authority, Luther was given a chance to recant. They were, he was brought before the authority, and they essentially said, okay, Luther, you're in big trouble here, bud. Do you, do you want to walk back what you said? We're giving you a chance to kind of say, hey, guys, my bad. Do you want to go ahead and do that, Luther? And as you remember, as we read in the holiness of God, what did he do? He said, can I have a day to think about it? Actually, I uh, need a day to think about it, pray about it. And then he comes back the next day in the famous quote, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience would be neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. Imagine, I can do nothing else except for stand here upon what? 
upon human reason, upon years of tradition. No, I can only stand here upon the authority of the written word of God. Then the Reformation is in full swing because Luther stood upon the solid rock, the sure foundation of the word of God, rejecting the teaching of popes and councils, recognizing that fallible men can err, but God's word can never err. Years later, scholars summarized the heart of the Reformation by using five Latin phrases. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. Those are the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. That is to say that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. That's what the sola means in every single one of those phrases. Now with that in mind, we're going to take a look at those first three solas, gratia, fide, and Christus, and we're going to consider the Reformed view of salvation. I'm going to attempt to be very brief in this section because we spent some time last year walking through, essentially, what is the Reformed view of salvation in that series, The Doctrines of Grace. So I would commend to you, we have a YouTube channel, a YouTube page or whatever it's called, and there's a playlist on there called The Doctrines of Grace. If you want to get more information, you can go back and listen to that. But to put it plainly for us, our purposes this morning, Reformed theology maintains that salvation is of the Lord. It's, it's that simple. Salvation is of the Lord. Man brings nothing to the table except his hunger. That's why Jesus says, if anyone is hungry, let him come eat. If anyone is thirsty, let him come drink. He doesn't say, come try your hardest with me to help you be saved. He says, you've got nothing. You're hungry and you're thirsty. I have bread and water. Salvation is entirely a work of the triune God from start to finish. One of the things that was most deeply offensive to me whenever I've, the Lord really radically changed my life. For those of you who don't know, I used to be an alcoholic. I was incarcerated for nine months because of my sin. And whenever I got out, the Lord changed me in there. And whenever I got out, people would say, man, I'm so glad you turned your life around. That was so offensive to me. I thought, are you kidding me? I couldn't stop drinking to save my life. I remember having thoughts. I, I don't even know how to stop drinking. I remember having thoughts that I could never imagine a day without alcohol. And then it's gone. The desire is completely gone. It's not because I said, you know what, I, maybe I should try doing some things differently. It's because God came and brought new life. And people said, I'm so glad you turned your life around. It's, 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 not, that, it's not that at all. It's the work of the triune God from start to finish. So along with these first three solas, we're going to add in, just kind of lump everything in, the other curse word, Calvinism. Oh, you Calvinists, taking your Bible seriously. 
also known as the doctrines of grace. Sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, and solus Christus, Christ alone, speak to the how of salvation, how we are saved. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. While the other great Reformed doctrine, known as Calvinism, or the doctrines of grace, it's much more speaking to the whole issue of salvation from, from beginning to end. I would say that these solas put forth gospel truth and that Calvinism tells us why these solas must be true. Now here's why. Calvinism, as you know, has five points. Tulip. It's a pretty flower. Who can be mad at a tulip? Who can, People with allergies. T-U-L-I-P. The T stands for total depravity. What does that mean? It means that man is totally ruined by sin. It does not mean that every single individual is as maximally sinful as they can be. It means that everything about every single individual since Adam, apart from Christ, is completely ruined by sin. This is why your good works are not good enough to earn you heaven, is because everything in you, every fiber of your being, has been affected by and ruined by sin. But as though that were not bad enough, we also sin. We have a sin nature, and we're sinners. We're both sinful and sinners. This is the truth of everybody. Pastors, people in seminaries, people on the mission field, evangelists, everyone is ruined by sin. Thus, because of this sinful nature, everyone is unable to come to God. This is why it was so ridiculous to say, I'm so glad you got your life together. I can't come to God. I can't come to him on my own. Why? Because I'm ruined by sin. Therefore, my will is completely contrary to the will of God. Man will not choose God apart from a work of God in the heart. It's impossible. The you, that's why the you is important. Because the you stands for unconditional election. The Calvinism teaches that it is God's choosing of us that leads to salvation. In other words, you're saved not because you walked an aisle one day, although that might have been the moment of your conversion, you're saved because God, before the foundation of the world, said that one. I'm going to save this person. And then he created you and guarded your life in such a way that you would not perish until you had eternal life. It's unconditional election. God chose you because you wouldn't choose him. God chose you even though you would not choose him. My, what grace. Do you wonder why we sing songs that say, gracious Savior of my ruined life? It's because we understand we are sinful to the core. And it had to be God's choosing. It had to be. Otherwise, we would never come to him. God, before the foundation of the world, chose to save a people known as the bride of Christ. My friends, are you able to choose your spouse, but God can't? You can choose a spouse for yourself, but, but God is forced to take upon him whoever. I don't think so. God chose a spouse, a bride that he gave to his son. 
before the foundation of the world. And as part of this choosing for the son of bride, that entailed the son coming to the earth to purify this bride. Christ purchased our salvation. That's the L. Now it's very un, this is a very unfortunate terminology, limited atonement, that the work of Christ on the cross only applies. It's only applied to the people who have been given to the Son before the foundation of the world. That is, while the blood of Christ was sufficient enough to save everybody, we know that not everybody is saved. We know that there will be people who spend their eternity in everlasting judgment. So what's the, what's the deal? Did Christ fail on the cross? By no means. Christ's blood is effective for those whom the Father chose before the foundation of the world. That means that everybody that God chose is purified by the blood. Everyone. Everyone. That means the worst sinner is purified by the blood because the Father chose to save that person. That's amazing truth, in case you didn't know. Now, God brings all of this choosing of a people and purifying of a people into fruition by calling us unto salvation through the work of the Spirit. That's I, irresistible grace. That means that you could not choose God on your own. God chose you. He sent his son to purify you. And then he makes you alive, gives you a new nature. And then you see Christ, you hear the gospel, and you say, my, oh my, what is this glorious news I'm hearing? Who is this marvelous, majestic Christ? I want him. And you exercise the faith that has been given to you by God in Christ. You are irresistibly drawn. He makes you willing and able such that you want to come to him. Where before all you wanted was sin. Now there's something new going on. I can't explain it. I didn't care about God before. And now I can't stop thinking about God. What's going on? That's the work of the spirit in your heart. He made you alive. And that's why the P is true. The perseverance of the saints. That means that if you are saved, you will never fall away, ever. Why? Because you will be caused to persevere until the end, because you will be preserved by the Spirit. When God gives you His Spirit, you are sealed. He says, I will give you eternal life, not 10 years of life, until you fall away from the faith because you just couldn't get your act together, because you couldn't read your Bible enough because you couldn't be as holy as these other people. When you are Christ's, you are His until the very last day. Christians sin. That's a weird thing to hear in church. We're not perfect people. Boy, do we sin. The difference is we hate it now. It causes us to grieve Why? Because there's new life here and because the Spirit of God at work in our hearts is purifying us that He might keep us until the end. That's how He causes you to persevere is He gives you a hatred for sin so that you don't go and fall back into the same old things in an unrepentant fashion. You'll sin. 
You will. And you'll hate it. And then you'll remember. Christ shed his blood for you. I'm forgiven because of his work. Not because of mine. Isn't it great that we're saved by grace alone? Through faith alone? In Christ alone? And not your works? I don't know about you, but if it were up to my works, I'm out of there. I'm doomed. Because there are many things I fail at. I love the way that James writes it. We all fail in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. But glory be to God that he keeps us into, unto the end. That's why you can't lose your salvation. But that's also why we believe that if you are a true Christian, you will not live a life of unrepentant sin. Because the Holy Spirit of God will not allow you. Because you will hurt too much. You will grieve too much. You won't be able to sleep. It'll wear on you. But those who continue on in unrepentant sin, what do they, they display that they're not of God? They might go to church all the time. Boy, they might thump that Bible. But if they can sin without feeling any, any sort of remorse, that person needs to be saved for the first time. So Calvinism is looking at the big picture of salvation from eternity past to eternity future. I suppose it could also be said that the doctrines of grace are explaining sola gratia, fide, and solus Christus. Now to be sure, this is what people hate the most about Reformed theology is the view of salvation. I want to say here that Reformed theology, it is so much more than just about salvation. But also, this view is sourced entirely from the pages of Scripture. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. You know this passage. This is going to be the first time you've heard this in your life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to go ahead and start reading. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's that? That's Satan. Among whom we all once lived. We all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. Verse 4. Glorious verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one goes to heaven saying, I got myself here. 
Everyone goes to heaven saying, God brought me here. Everyone goes to hell saying, I brought myself here. The main arguments from this passage, verses 1 through 3, total depravity, you were dead. Why, why is Jesus, the Jesus thing, just not appealing to you? Why do you just not get it? Because you're dead. You're dead in sin and trespasses. Why, why, do, why is the Bible just so weird? Because you're dead. You're dead in sin and trespasses. What can a dead man do? Can a dead man get up and walk? If we all went to the graveyard and said, come out, come out, come out. Who's coming out of that grave? Nobody. But this is what Reformed theology is saying is look at the scripture. Look at what it says. It says you were dead. You can't choose anything when you're dead. All that you do is stink. You rot. That's it. That is the life lived for self apart from Christ. It's nothing but dead and rottenness. Verses 4 through 6. But God. Every single testimony is but God. That's who I am. I am verses 1 through 3. You are verses 1 through 3. Or at least you were. Some of you might still be. Verses 4 through 6, this is what God did. This is grace alone. Grace alone saves you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were, does it say, trying really hard to come to God? He says, even when you were dead, even when you were laying there, in your grave, rotten, putrid, in your sin. Even then, God loved you enough that he brought you to life. Even then, he didn't wait till you got your act together. He didn't wait for you to figure it out. He made you alive. Why? Because of his love and his mercy. Why did he do it? Verses 7 through 9. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's God's gift. It's not a result of works, so that you can't boast. In other words, he did this so that he would be glorified. That your salvation, ultimately, is not about you. You are the beneficiary while God receives glory. You might say, well, Matt, I don't see this talking about God choosing people. You're right, that's in verses 3 through 6 in chapter 1. You can go back and read that on your own time. That you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You were chosen, Paul says, according to the purpose of God's will, not your own, not yours. It was God's will. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Allow me to say... We could spend the rest of our time walking through Scripture to show not just in proof texts and one-off verses that say the word predestined, but we could show that this is how God has always done it from Genesis to Revelation. You heard of the nation Israel, right? 
didn't God choose the nation Israel out of all the nations? We read that and it's no problem. But then we get to the New Testament and God again continuing to choose for himself a people is now a problem. Well, that's that Calvinism stuff. No, that's that Bible stuff. God always chooses his own. And at the same time, holds every person accountable. You must choose this day whom you will serve, whether it be Christ as king or Satan. Because there will only be two options. Are you going to serve Christ? Or are you going to serve your flesh and serve Satan? Because that's what Ephesians 2 told us, isn't it? You were following the, the course of the world, following after who? The prince of the power of the air who is at work right now in the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? Everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus. Everybody who does not believe in Christ is currently a son of disobedience. Because they haven't trusted in him. They might be a lost sheep. But currently they are following the prince of the power of the air. If you'd like to continue learning about that, go back to our YouTube playlist once again, because we have to move on. Our next sola is sola scriptura. I mentioned a moment ago that Reformed theology is more, more than just a view of salvation. It's been said that Reformed theology is an entire worldview, and I would agree with that statement because of the doctrine of sola scriptura. It means scripture alone. Scripture alone. John MacArthur defined this doctrine very well when he said, Sola Scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly, guess where? In visions, in speaking in tongues. No, right here in the pages of Holy Scripture. Everything that you need to know this is a very helpful and a simple way to define it. But it must be added that sola scriptura does not mean that we believe that the Bible is the only place where you can find truth of any kind. My friends, if you want to learn how to make a cheeseburger, you're not going to find a chapter and verse for it. I, I wish that you could, because that would be a great cheeseburger. That would be the best one in town, I, I guarantee you that. You can't find chapter and verse for how to work on the engine of your vehicle. You're not going to find chapter and verse or an epistle written on algebra. The church said, hallelujah. However, all of the truth necessary to be saved and then live a God-glorifying life can be found and is found only here. That means that the church does not add to it, whether it be popes, or councils, or anything, nothing can be added to the testimony of Scripture. If you want to know how to worship God, where must you turn? To Scripture. If you want to know how to parent your child, where will you find wisdom and the principles necessary to parent your child? Scripture. The way to find everything that will help you and lead you in the path everlasting, it's only in the pages of Scripture. It's not in what you think. It's not in what I think. 
The scriptures are the only means by which we can come to know God, who he is, what he's like, and how to live in relationship with him. Y'all just the Bible thumpers. Yep. I am. Oh, you got me. You got me there. I'm a Bible thumper. Yeah, that's, you know why? Because this is where God shows us who he is. This is how God, where God tells us how to be saved. This is where God tells us how to live in relationship with him. Yeah, I'll be a Bible thumper. There is nothing new for mankind to know about God that he has not already revealed in his word. Why don't we do prophecies and visions and all of that stuff here? Because everything we need for life and godliness is right here. It's right here in the Bible. You don't need me to go and come back from the top of a mountain and say, I have a word from the Lord from you this morning, church. Listen up to me. That amounts to nothing more than man puffing himself up and making himself the authority and saying, you have to listen to me. I'm the one that has the word from the Lord. You don't. You know, that's exactly what the Catholic Church was doing. They did not keep the Bible in modern language. They kept it in Latin so that the poor man could not understand it. And he had to be entirely dependent upon the church to hear a word from God. And that's what continues to happen today in places where they want to prophesy and have visions. And and the pastor is the, the guy who hears from God. No, you can hear from God. You know how? You open your Bible and you read it out loud. Guess what's happening? God's speaking to you. The scriptures are the sole infallible authority over the church and over the Christian. How do we know that? And why should we use the scriptures and, and, or trust them and hold the Bible in such high esteem? I recently heard a, a person who's well-known in the charismatic world. He was making fun of people who love the Bible. And he said, you know, it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. I thought, wow. A professing Christian mocking taking the Bible serious. This is why the church is so inept today. is because it has abandoned sola scriptura. It's not about the Bible alone. It's about everything else plus the Bible, a little sprinkling of it. But I want to walk you through, just as I'm going to just rattle these off, so we're not going to turn there. Scripture is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 all scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? B.B. Warfield said it best. The Bible is the word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. The Bible is not a collection of great thoughts and, and good things to do. Good things that, you know, little uh, quotes that you could put on a, a, a coffee mug. The Bible is God's word. It is literally the words of God. And because this is true, it is also infallible and inerrant. Infallibility and inerrancy simply means that it is without error, and that it cannot fail. That means that it cannot lead you astray, and it cannot lie to you. 
Why? Because it is God's word. So you can literally base your whole life on the Bible and be in real good shape, to say the least. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Proverbs 13, or 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. Because that's true, the word of God is authoritative. It is the authority over the church. God's word is so powerful and it carries so much authority that God created the entire created order with what? His words. God spoke. That's how much power God's words have. Psalm 138, verse 2. I bow down toward your holy temple, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul is so happy that the Thessalonians, the church of Thessalonica, that they received the message from the apostles, not as the word of men, but the, the very words of God. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. Therefore, the scriptures are sufficient to inform our faith and practice. This is missing today, 2 Timothy 3.16 and then verse 17, all scriptures breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Get this, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I challenge you to go home and read First and Second Timothy all the way through. Start in First Timothy chapter 1, read it all the way through to the end of Second Timothy what you're going to see is Paul making a real big deal about the Word of God. Do you know why that matters? It's because Timothy was a young minister left to be and take charge over the church of Ephesus and to put things into order. And so how does Paul tell him to do that? Bible, 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 Bible. Be a Bible thumper, Timothy. In other words, he says, devote yourself to these things. We've bought into the lie today that the scriptures are not enough, though. That they're not enough to get you through bad times. That they're not enough to help you when you're afraid and anxious. That they're not enough to help you when you grieve. That they're not enough to help you live a holy life. That they're not enough to help you delight in God. And they certainly aren't enough to build a church upon. You need more. You need the Bible plus other things. But if we believe that the scriptures literally contain the very words of the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, why would we turn anywhere else? Anywhere else. So then this doctrine is perhaps the most important doctrine in Reformed theology because it's the basis for everything else. Because we derive everything else from the pages of scripture. And you might say, well, isn't the gospel the very most important thing? Where do we learn about the gospel? Well, isn't Jesus the most important? Where do we learn about Jesus? Wasn't the church the most? Where do we learn about that? We get all of that from the pages of the written word. Lastly, soli deo gloria. This is our final consideration this morning. Where sola scriptura informs our faith and practice, soli deo gloria motivates our faith and practice. Soli Deo Gloria means glory to God alone. 
means not me, not a church, not any person, not councils. Glory to God alone. And guess what? When you are built upon the sure foundation of sola scriptura, and you are stead set and adamant about applying this word to your life, do you know what you're going to do? You're going to glorify God. Because God tells you how to do it. That's why I love Reformed theology. Because it makes a real big deal about God. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad to get the focus off of myself for a little while. Do you ever get so caught up in your life of just your failings and your mistaking, you just beat yourself up? Or how about just the rough time that you had in your life? Do you know what I love about this theology? It says, stop looking at yourself. Look at God. I love Reformed theology because there's this understanding about salvation that it's not about you. You don't have to be the holiest man alive because you won't be. But Christ has made you his and he's going to bring you home. And you have a sure footing in him that you are sealed until the last day. Do you know why? Because Christ spilled his blood. Why did he spill his blood? It's to fulfill the law. Because you're a lawbreaker. Because all you do is break the law. That's all you do. Your whole life. It's lawbreaking. Do you know how? The law says, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. You've never done that. You break that law every second of every single day. Christ never did. Christ never broke it. And then he fulfilled the rest of the law to the T with perfect obedience. Not just an action, but from his heart. He loved God with his whole heart. Because God is his father. And then he went to the cross as the perfect substitute for you and I. He had never sinned. But on that cross... The Father took all your law-breaking, all of those seconds of never loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all of those outbursts of rage, all of those times of lust. He took every ounce of your sin and laid it upon His Son. And He took every, all of that righteousness from Christ, His own Son, and credited it to your account as though it were you who did it. Such that now the Father can look at you and he doesn't see just this lawbreaker. He sees a person who has been purified in the blood of his son. What happens if you have to just put your faith in Christ? That sacrifice was meant for you. But when you do that, you are sealed forever. Such that even when you continue to sin, something has happened. You don't want it anymore. You now want to obey God. You now start to love the things that you once hated. And you start to hate the things that you once loved. And you can't even explain it. I don't know. Well, Ephesians 2, no. It, it says that you were dead and now you're alive. And that's why you can feel it now. 
And that's why you hate your sin. And that's why sometimes you get so miserable and you beat yourself down is because you don't want to be that way anymore. You want to honor God. You know what happened? God gave you his spirit. But none of that happens if we don't put faith in him and come to him and bring him our neediness and say, I'm a ruined sinner. I have nothing to bring. You have everything to give. Would you save me? Would you save me? Would you make me new? Would you make that alive thing real in my life? And then he does, and you're sealed forever. And you will join us in heaven, where we'll be surrounded by a bunch of people who it's tr- that is their story. And we're just going to stand around God and say, Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Look at all these people that he brought here by his perfect sacrifice. Glory to God alone. That's why I love Reformed theology. And that's why that'll be the perspective from which all of the other distinctives are formulated. Because this theology makes nothing of man Puts all the glory in God's corner. So allow me to say in closing, because of everything that we've said today, all the ground that we've covered, and more that has not been covered, we're not going to be ashamed of saying that one of our distinctives is Reformed theology. I don't want to be ashamed of that. Because it brings God so much glory. We're not going to hide it away to only be spoken of in private meetings hey, we know that that's what we're doing, but don't tell anybody. That's not going to be what we do. We're not going to be embarrassed about this because the great truths of Reformed theology are sourced from the pages of Scripture, and these truths exalt God high above us, recognizing that all things exist for the glory of God. Thus, this Reformed theology will be the perspective from which we consider the rest of our distinctives as we move forward. Let's pray. Oh God, I, I just thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for giving him as a sacrifice. Thank you for making him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Thank you that he lived a perfect life that we could not ever live. Thank you that you loved us while we were dead and that you made us alive. You brought us to life for the first time so that we could know you, so that we could love you, so that we could, for the first time in our life, really, truly experience joy, peace, and hope, and love. Thank you that this is true. And I thank you for raising up men throughout history who have reclaimed these great biblical truths so that we can exult in them. Lord, I pray. Pray that you would Help us to cherish these truths and proclaim them boldly for the glory of God alone. In Christ's name we pray.